Our lessons today come from the Gospel of Mark and of Matthew. Hear God's word. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then from Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Thanks, Kendi. And good morning, everyone. Let me turn this on. Is it on? Oh, okay. Let me turn it off then. No, I'm kidding. It's good to be home. I've been away for a few weeks. Uh, I was teaching in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and then on the front and back ends of that teaching time was with my granddaughter who lives in Germany. And by the way, my daughter and, and my uh, son-in-law, but particularly my granddaughter. So we had a great time, very fun, uh, and, but also very good to be home. We were obviously then, because we've been gone so long, the unthinkable has happened in my absence. The Cubs won the World Series. And um, I'm still recovering as a Giant fan, but I wish them well. Uh, it'll happen again in 2124, so uh, between now and then we'll just enjoy some more giant victories. But uh, we woke up uh, to the very surprising news, actually, uh, on uh, Wednesday morning, our time in Switzerland, uh, regarding the results of our election. And uh, a French gentleman stood up, and he was looking at his newspaper online, and he said, it is over, just like that. <laughs> and there was, it's a group of Frenchmen, and Donna and I, and, uh, and subsequent to that moment, have been praying and pondering how, how best to shepherd our community uh, in the wake of election results, and so I know we're all interested in that. And I think the topic of rest is perhaps more poignant than ever, our topic for this morning. And the reason I say that is because any, anything that we do ever that's motivated by anxiety or fear or triumphalism or pride will only serve to further deep divisions in our culture and lead us down a, a path that's unhealthy. So we're looking at the theme of rest this morning in our ongoing series of Constant, as we'll see. But I'll invite you, because of the poignancy of the morning, especially to join me in prayer before we open the text together. Father, thanks that we can gather within the shelter of these walls in, in this beautiful country that is ours and look to you as light. And I pray that you would teach us how to live as people of hope in the midst of all that ensues in the days ahead. And we are quick to acknowledge that we don't know what will ensue, but with humility, we also acknowledge that we never did know. Uh, and, and so thank you that you are the shepherd and the blessed controller of all things. Now teach us to live in this moment well, to shine as light, and we'll give you glory for that as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, 
So in this constant series, what we're trying to do over and over again is learn the ways of God. It's a very important phrase, the ways of God. It shows up in Psalm 103, actually, where <clears throat> Moses is juxtaposed against the children of Israel. And we're told there in Psalm 103 that the children of Israel knew the acts of God, but Moses knew the ways of God. And if you read that, then you go, well, I wonder what the difference is between knowing acts and ways. And acts mean uh, that we can name what God has done. God, oh, God parted the Red Sea. God gave us manna. God, God uh, led us through the wilderness with a flame and a cloud. But the ways of God is different than that. The ways of God means that we understand the heart of God. And we know from Scripture that Moses had a great deal of intimacy with God. And because Moses was intimate with God, he understood the ways of God. And that means a lot of things, this phrase, ways of God. We, he understood God's ways in the world, God's ways with nations, God's ways with people, God's ways with Moses himself. And in, in the moment, it's significant to see that understanding the ways of God means this. Moses understands God's capacity to redeem. And we're going to talk about that this morning in the context of rest. And he understands that the ways of God have never been about God instantly or magically bringing transformation, really ever, all through the Old Testament. That's not how God worked. So what you see is this little by little, God guiding, God bringing people along, God transforming God's people right in the midst of adversity. That, uh, and adversity always comes in the midst of living in a fallen world. So if you remember, uh, those of you who've been here a while, this constant series, we go, uh, if you follow kind of invisibly here, we go, God, have, God creates something, and then there's disruption and things begin to fall apart. And then right at the bottom of that arc is where hope is introduced. And then God brings restoration, culmination. And so creation, disruption, hope, culmination, same pattern. This morning, we look at that pattern through the lens of this theme of rest. And we start by asking a very basic question from the text that was read this morning. How could Jesus sleep in a boat? And I, we'll just pause there. And I'll confess to you, I don't know how anyone can sleep in a boat because I'm not a boat person. Some of you in the room are boat people. I know you are. and I've been on some of your boats once in a while. But if, if, if you know me, you know uh, I spend way more time on solid ground than in boats. Boats make me nervous. And I don't know why that is, but they feel very small and the ocean feels very large. And even when the sea is calm, uh, I'm always anxious about what's going to go wrong in the boat, let alone in a storm. And so now... In the text, there's a storm and a boat, and the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, and the storm is of such a degree that waves are breaking over the bow of the boat, filling the boat with water, and then here's Jesus, and what do we read in the text? Jesus asleep in the boat. And it's just, like, I just pause, and I ask myself the question, who does that? Like, who sleeps in the midst of the storm, and how does Jesus have this capacity, and what, what can we learn from that? So if you'll set that on the back burner as a question, we're going we're gonna to look together at the theme of rest for a few minutes here, God's creation and vision for rest, and then how rest became disrupted, and then the hope and the culmination, and then we'll come back to this question at the end, uh, because I would like to sleep in boats as well. Uh, and so we begin here by looking at God's vision for true rest. So if you go back to Genesis and you see what God had in mind in the beginning, it's very interesting to me that God had rest in mind even before the world was broken by the fall. In other words, rest is not a plan B uh, introduced because sin entered the world and now, oh, life's so hard, we've got to get away and rest. No, rest happened even before the fall. It's very interesting. And a couple of observations you see. First is this, uh, God's view of the world begins with, with evening. 
And so in the creation narrative in Genesis 1, this is what you read. There was evening and morning, day one. There was evening and morning, day two. There was evening and morning, and you know where I'm going with this, right? So evening and morning, but the point is, uh, the day begins when? At sundown. The day, actually, the, the, the day begins at sundown. We don't, who thinks that way in the room? None of us do, right? Uh, we think of starting our day early in the morning, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. We get up, we caffeinate, 10 a.m. if you're in college, I get that. <laughs> we get up, we caffeinate. Uh, if you turn on the news, uh, you hear, like the news people, hey, this is how you start your day. And so we, we view it as the start of the day. No, if we're going to think biblically, actually, we understand that the beginning of the day is the evening. And why? Because the first thing, the first thing for us in God's economy, the first thing is rest. Not the second thing. The first thing is rest. So this is significant. And God's intention is that rest would become the foundation out from which our work occurs. We rest first and receive from God. And in that receiving, we receive discernment and strength, and then we know what to do next, but it begins with rest. And then as a means of showing us that rest is part of what it means to be made in God's image, we read that on the seventh day, what did God do? On the seventh day, God rested. God rested. So, so if God rested and we are made in God's image, then it's incumbent upon us to what? Learn to rest. All of us are made for rest. Now, let me explain what we mean by rest. Rest here in the text means a time set apart from production, okay? You can even write that down. In other words, God's done producing. He, you know, sun and moon and stars and heavens and part, you know, the waters and the land and the animals and the trees and then, the, and then humanity. And then God rests. Rest is a time set apart from production to simply ponder and, and receive from what's been created. So we, 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 we stop, we rest, and we, when we stop and rest, we embrace part of our calling as image bearers, as image bearers. And so for all of us in the room, it's important that we see this, you are called to rest. You're called to a time apart from production to just ponder and receive uh, from creation, receive from the text, receive from fellowship with other people, receive from good food. That's why God gives us a gift of Sabbath, so that we learn to rest. So that's, that's the vision. Now, uh, before going on to the second point, we're still under this rubric, God's vision for true rest. I want to give you some reasons why rest is so important in the economy of God. And there are three that I want to look at this morning. First, rest is important because this is the way of all creation. Everything that God made rests. We'll see that. Second, uh, we'll, we'll see that uh, uh, enough is enough. In other words, God calls us to rest to teach us when we have enough. And third, rest brings our inner and outer worlds together. So, so let's look at these, uh, beginning with this. Why does God invite you to rest? Because you're created and the entire created order rests. Everything rests. So uh, we see this. All, uh, like I love studying creation and how creation operates in the seasons, right? Uh, we have fir trees where we live up in the Cascades. And in the springtime... Uh, I love photographing fir trees in the spring because there's dark green branches and on the very tips 
almost this fluorescent bright green. Do you know what I'm talking about? And that's the new life that's burst out. It happens every spring, and then it takes on the color of the rest of the branch over the course of the summer. But then in the fall, uh, you never see that. There's no new growth in the fall, ever, 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 and none in the winter. And what I want you to know here, biologically, is that these trees are actually resting at that moment, and they will, like a fir tree, will not open a new bud at rest even if it's 80 degrees outside, even if, even if the temperature changes, it will never open a new bud because it has this rhythm inherently built into it, tied not to temperature. It could be a warm, dry day in January. The, the tree still sleeps uh, because God has made this rhythm of rest. And not just trees. Uh, how many have ever seen a woodchuck in the room? Like, how many don't know if you've seen a woodchuck? Raise your hand. That's most of us, right? It's a very interesting... Woodchuck is one of those hibernating animals. And so when it goes into hibernation, its, its temperature drops 30 degrees centigrade. It was like seven, about 70, the temperature drops about 70 degrees. That's pretty nuts, right? Uh, so uh, the woodchuck, hey, it's time to chill. <laughs> and it literally chills. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it goes to sleep for months. It goes to sleep for months. Now, and this is my favorite one. What's the pulse of a mouse? Does anyone know, like, the, the heart rate of a mouse? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. I mean, here's the answer. About 600 beats a, winter, uh, 600 beats a minute. 600 beats a minute is a mouse. That's, a, that's hyper, right? Lots of coffee. Um, it's a mouse. Except in the winter, its pulse drops from 600 beats a minute to 30 beats a minute. And it goes to sleep. And then it wakes up, and, it, and, it's, and it's on again. But mouse, woodchuck, fir tree, all of creation, there's a rhythm of rest. Everything rests. And since you're part of creator, you're called to rest. And since Jesus in his humanity was part of creator, Jesus also rested. And you see a beautiful example of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, resting in the sense of, of taking, part, uh, taking time apart from productivity to receive from God and ponder what God is doing. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has a very full day. He's healing people. He's forgiving sins. He's teaching. He's casting out demons. There's a lame man who's now walking. All this stuff is going on. And, and, and so full day. And every time Jesus does something, word is spreading and the, and the crowds are growing so that even into the evening, Jesus is still teaching, still healing, still casting out demons. And then at the end of all of that, uh, it says that uh, in the next morning, the whole city had gathered at the door. So Peter, one of the disciples, goes to where Jesus is ostensibly sleeping and he goes to wake him up and Jesus isn't there. And then they look, the disciples look for Jesus, they can't find Jesus. And then Jesus comes back in Mark 1. He'd been away, like he went on a hike at 3 in the morning. And he comes back and Jesus says, Jesus, what are you doing? The whole city is here now. And of course, the subtext is this. This is a perfect time. You've got the market share, you've got the power, you've got the momentum. Now's the time to, you know, act. Come on, Jesus. Like, let's go. And then Jesus says, yeah, let's go. We're going to a different town right now. We're leaving this entire city, still sins to forgive, still demons to cast out, still healing to be done. It's time to move. Now, why does Jesus do this and how does he know it? He knows it because of his rhythm of rest. He takes time apart from productivity. He listens to God. God says, you're done here. He moves on. We all need this rhythm of work and rest, right? And so this is the first reason that Jesus teaches us this. 
Because we're part of the Creator. Jesus is part of the Creator. Everything rests. It's in the rest time that we receive. Second, God gives us Sabbath and the invitation to rest to teach us that enough is enough. Do you know what I mean by enough is enough? When God rests on day seven, here's what God is saying. I'm done. I'm done creating the universe. Could he have created more? Absolutely. Uh, he could have given us two moons instead of one. He could have made Mars inhabitable. He could have fiddled with DNA and created life on other planets, but God, for some reason, whenever, it's six days, God created, seventh day, I'm done. I'm done for now. I'm resting. And, and so this is intended to be exemplary because God says, look, I've been working, but I have worked what? Enough. I have, this God, I have worked enough. It's amazing. In the, in the Jewish Sabbath tradition, Sabbath always begins at sundown on Friday. It doesn't matter what time of year, so that if it's in the winter and you're up in a northern state, sundown's 4.30 in the afternoon or 4. And the, in, the, in the summer, maybe it's 9 p.m., right? But when the sun sets, according to the Sabbath principle in Jewish tradition, you stop whatever it is you're doing. As soon as the sun goes down, you stop. This is very... This is very hard for some of us in the room, right? There are people in the room, I know it, who are um, task-oriented to the point where when you begin something, you can't rest until you finish it. Who is like that in here? Anybody? Like, you get started on it, and you're like, no, I can't stop. I can't stop. I got to finish it. And your spouse is saying, uh, there's dinner now. Go away. No, I'm working, you know. And, and you're like, you're, you, we can't finish. We can't, excuse me, we can't rest until we finish. And so this is, so in this Sabbath principle, sun goes down and that's it, you're done. Even, listen, even if you're not done, you're done. Why? One author says it this way. When our will is bent toward a goal, listen, we enter so deeply into our work that soon we feel that this project of ours is the only thing that matters. And many of you in the room who are not multitaskers, you get into this mode. I get into this mode sometimes when I'm writing. <laughs> And then, I, and then it's 12 hours later, and I didn't eat, I didn't do anything. You get, in, you get in a zone, do you know? And we get in this zone where nothing else matters. And then the author goes on and says, in the moment, if we do our work well, it's appropriate to focus on the task before us, but if we practice Sabbath, the instant the sun goes down, the instant we stop, we put the pen down, we close our computer, we shut the toolbox, whatever it is that we're doing, we turn off the machines, we lift up our eyes, and we see the place where the sun and the earth touch, and it's at that moment that we realize how large the universe is, how small our labors are, what we thought was so important actually isn't that important after all, and yes, even if my project isn't done, the universe goes on without me. How liberating is that? So, uh, God is teaching us through Sabbath to say enough. I'm done. And that's okay. And then, and then the third reason that God has this vision for rest and Sabbath is because the principle of the Sabbath day brings our inner and outer worlds together. Our inner and outer worlds. In other words, rest in the Old Testament is practiced as a day. God says that to Israel. But the day was intended to be an outward expression of an inward reality that our hearts are at rest. And now when we come to the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4, this is what we're told. Therefore, let us fear, us, we who are New Testament saints, Christ followers, let us fear lest, having a promise of entering God's rest, any of us 
should seem to have come short of it. And so what God is saying here is the, po- the very real possibility exists that you and I can know Christ, have said yes to Jesus, been baptized, but never entered fully into the rest that God has for us. And if we miss the rest, what the author to the Hebrews says is that's the one thing you should fear. Don't miss God's rest. Enter into that. And, and, and uh, what that means is when our heart is at rest... Everything's at rest. And in Hebrews 4, verses 10 through 12, this rest is, def- uh, is defined for us this way. He was rested from his works. Uh, oh, excuse me. He who enters God's rest rests from his works, even the same way God rested on day seven. And so what does it mean to rest from your works? It means that like we're kind of in this perpetual state where we say with the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And there's a There's a paradox in that. I'm dead, but I'm alive. And yet it's not I who live, but what? Christ lives, does anyone know? Through me, through me. So that Christ now has in me a vessel through which Christ can express life, but it's not my life, it's his. It's not my time, it's his. It's not my money, it's his. It's not my agenda, it's his. And when I live that way, I know rest. And when I know rest, it's not just spiritual, it affects all of life, it's physiological as well. When I'm spiritually at rest, I sleep better. When I'm spiritually at rest, I'm less anxious about the election. When I'm spiritually at rest, there's a peace in me that is beyond understanding, and the Apostle Paul promised that in Philippians chapter 4. So we're invited to rest. In fact, we're told the one thing you should fear missing out on in in this life is, is God's rest, because you're created to both receive and enjoy that rest. It bridges our inner and outer worlds. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says it this way. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. And don't think of saved there as justified so that you get to go to heaven when you die. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, in repentance and rest, when I'm really living in rest, I'm saved. What is that? Saved, delivered. Delivered from what? Oh, you know, insomnia, anxiety, rage, fear, I'm delivered. <laughs> I'm able to live as a person of hope even if everything's collapsing all around me. I want that. I hope you want that. In repentance and rest, you'll be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. In other words, we're granted the capacity in Christ to sleep in the boat. That's very good. But we need to read on because Isaiah thirty fifteen says this, but you would not have it. So God is offering us A gift on a platter, rest, right? Look, I'm giving you a day, rest. And here's God's indictment. You wouldn't have it. Very interesting. So this brings us to the question of disruption. Like, how does rest elude us? Why is it so hard to rest? And the short answer is simple, the one that we developed this morning. Humans ignore the Sabbath. We do. We're the only thing that has a hard time resting. I mean, the mouse rests, the woodchuck rests, the fir tree rests. We have a hard time resting. So uh, we see this in many places in the Bible, but uh, uh, one, of the, one of the profound sections of Ezekiel really reveals this pretty clearly. Ezekiel chapter 20, 21, 22, 23. Over and over again in that little section, God answers Israel's question, the question was this, God, why are you judging us? We have a temple, we have a choir, we, we sing, we, we pray, the texts are read, 
um, like, like we're doing, are we doing what you exactly want us to do? God, why judgment? And God's answer over and over again. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, I gave you a Sabbath, you ignored the Sabbath. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 16, you rejected my rules, you didn't walk in my uh, statutes, you profaned the Sabbath. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20, you rejected the Sabbath. Chapter 20, verse 24, they do not obey my rules, they reject my statutes, they, re they profane the Sabbath. Ezekiel 22, verse 8, you've despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, the priests have done violence to my law, profaned my holy things, made no distinction between the holy and common, and they have disregarded the Sabbath. Ezekiel 23, verse 38, moreover, they have done this, they have ignored the Sabbath. You ignore the Sabbath, you profane the Sabbath, you disregard the Sabbath, and he goes on, but I won't. <laughs> you've heard enough. You get the point. When you hear it over and over and over again, then you're like this. God's really upset that we ignore the Sabbath. And I, Okay, so then I'm reading that. And as I'm reading it and studying it, then I go, yeah, but why, why is it that we ignore the Sabbath? Like, what's behind that? Why is it so hard for us to rest? Two reasons. Fear and pride. Let me talk about both of them briefly. Why do I ignore the Sabbath? Fear and pride. Here, fear, in other words... There's a fundamental question on the table. Do I really believe that God is going to provide for me? Do I really believe that? And you see this all the way back in Exodus chapter 16. Even before God gave the Ten Commandments, God gave the principle of the Sabbath to Israel in the wilderness when he gave them manna. It's this bread that showed up on the ground every morning, if you know the story. And so God, here's, I'm paraphrasing now for time, but here's what God says in Exodus 16. God says, look, um, every day when you go out, you're supposed to gather an omar, of manna. That's about twice this, okay? Like it's a liter. Gather an omar of manna. And then God is very clear. He says, don't gather more than an omar. Because, it, because all you need is an omar. If you gather more than an omar, uh, then what you gather will rot. Okay? So just gather an omar, and then the, tomorrow there'll be another omar out there, right? So what does Israel do? Well, you read the story. And of course, people, get, they go and they gather an Omar, but then they go, well, some go like this. Oh, you know what? What if there's no Omar tomorrow? So I know what we'll do. I'm just going to gather a couple Omars, put, you know, put some in my tent, and then if God doesn't come through for me, I've got my Omar. And of course, what happens? They wake up the next morning, and the extra that they gathered is rotten, and then God yells at Moses, and then Moses yells at the people, and that's what happens. And then... God says, this looks good. Then God says, oh, look, um, on day six, gather two Omars. Why? Well, because on day seven, there will be no Omars. And on day six, and only on day six, uh, the manna won't rot, right? So you wake up on the Sabbath, and it's a gift. No Omar gathering today, right? We sleep in and our manna will be there for us and we just enjoy and ponder the reality that God has provided for us. And so then, you know, of course, if you read the story, you know what happens. And so on day seven, it says, many got up and went out and looked for their Omar of manna because uh, they don't know if God's going to provide for them enough. And this is the question on the table. It has to do with the character of God. Will God provide for me? It was just a fundamental question. Am I on my own in this world? Or am I being shepherded and cared for and provided by a good God? That's the question. 
And the testimony of Jesus is that God provides for me. And the result of this is that I don't need to build bigger barns. I can live generously. I don't need to store away. I can give. And, 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 and those who do build bigger barns and those who refuse to live generously, the irony is when you read Luke 12 about the, rich, uh, uh, about the guy who built barns and, and Luke 18 about the rich young ruler, when you read these stories, the irony in both cases, these people went away sad. They had loads of material wealth, but no joy. There's a huge problem in our culture today. The crisis for many in our upwardly mobile city is not provision. It is for some But for many, the crisis is not wealth. The crisis is meaning. (laughs) I have more money than I know what to do with, but I'm not happy. I'm not sleeping. I'm lonely. I'm not not eating well. My relationships are, are, are disintegrating. Like, what's wrong? And the problem is this. You think you're on your own. You're not on your own. God wants to provide for you so that you can rest and receive. Because here's the deal, it, does, like, it doesn't depend on you. Your well-being in the end doesn't pr- depend on you because you didn't build anything alone, even if you're a Republican. <laughs> and by the way, if you're a Democrat, it doesn't depend on the state either. <laughs> because no state will ever meet your deepest needs, nor can it, nor was it designed to. And no state will ever put a canopy over moral bankruptcy and suddenly make the culture healthy. No. Hear me when I say this, because it's so important. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider. We're invited to contentment, rooted in the belief that as we enjoy intimacy with God and align our lives with God's promises, God will provide for us. But if I don't believe that, then I work more than I need to, and I hoard And this same fear is behind a lot of racism, to be blunt. We're afraid that immigrants will take our stuff. Uh, Classism, we're afraid that we won't have enough. Sexism, we're afraid of uh, empowering women. These fears are rooted in resource questions, often, actually. So the fear makes us work more than we need to, and we violate the Sabbath to our own loss. And it's not just fear, it's pride, actually. In other words, uh, when God gives us this day to rest, he's saying to us, look, even when you're not doing anything, I love you. Because my love for you is not about your capacity to like, work for me. <laughs> no, no, my love for you is, is really my character. This is really so beautiful and vital and important, but I'm not sure that we always believe it. And I, in fact, I know that many of us don't believe it because... We have a hard time admitting if we're not busy, and we, many of us in this room. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, there are times on my, I have a Friday day off, usually, and I usually go for a hike or something, but then after I've gone for a hike, um, my Sabbath consists of literally just sitting on the, on the back deck any time of year, a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or something, and just, the, there's fir trees out there, and I just, I just sit and look at the trees. I don't have a computer, I don't have a book, I just have a cup of coffee and a fir tree. And then, this happened to me once this summer, somebody called me on a Friday, my phone was there, and I kind of made the mistake of picking it up, and someone said, what are you doing? And it's very hard to say in that moment, you know, I'm actually not doing anything. How you, and when someone says, how are you doing? 
the standard answer in the Seattle culture is what? Hey, oh, how's it going? Oh, it's very busy. Oh, yes, you know, I'm overtaxed. I'm, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, oh, we're so busy. Well, congratulations. Is that, like, holy? No. <laughs> no, I mean, we think it is because we're so insecure. We're worried that if we're not doing anything, God's frowning on us, our neighbors are frowning on us. When in reality, we're called to rest as a testimony that God's love for us isn't contingent on our performance. But when I'm not, like when I'm at rest, there are times when I feel lazy. There are times when I feel unimportant. There are times when I feel like I'm letting others down. If you call me, I'm your pastor, if you call me and I say, I'm not doing anything right now, I worry what you will think. Oh, we need a new pastor, like one who does stuff. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I, like it's the wrong, it feels like the wrong answer. Do, do you know? But it's, but it's not necessarily the wrong answer. So, so, like our view of God's character is at the root of both fear and pride. Fear because we're not sure God's going to provide for us, so we've got to work harder and harder, store up, more, build bigger barns, and pride, like if I'm not doing, what does God think of me, let alone what do other people think? So that's our problem, and we end up ignoring the Sabbath. So how do we recover? Well, John 1.14 is where we read that Jesus comes to radically reorient our understanding of God's character. In other words, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus is the, is the revelation of, of God's character and our calling, what it means to be fully human. And, and Christ comes, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, to free us from fear. Because when fear governs our lives, we're slaves. Whether we're making four figures or six, we're slaves if fear governs our life. And this is where the boat story becomes valuable. Because I love the juxtaposition of the boat story of verses 37 and 38 in Mark chapter 4. So I'll just, I'll just read that very briefly. Verse, verse 37 reads this way, the, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. There was a fierce gale of wind, waves breaking over the boat. The boat was filling up. Jesus was asleep and they woke him and they said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And then he got up, rebuked the wind, said, hush, be still. The wind died down. And then he, then he said this, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And then, do you still have no faith? Still no faith. This is us. Way too often. Right? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I'm with you. I'm going to provide for you. I will shepherd the storm. I will provide bread. I will walk with you through the turmoil of national upheaval. Doesn't matter what's going on. I am with you. Why are you afraid? That's Jesus' question. It's a great question. And why is Jesus not afraid, is my question. I mean, come on. The waves are, you know, busting over the top of the boat. I'd be afraid. Jesus is supposed to be like me. How come he's not afraid? Well, here's the thing. Jesus understands that there's an entirely different kingdom that operates by an entirely different set of principles than the kingdoms of this world. And this is where politics comes in a little bit. Jesus understands that the Roman Empire, about which the disciples are so very concerned, is a backdrop for the story of redemption in the kingdom of God. It is not the story. The empire is never the story. That's, that's the news cycle, but it's not our news cycle. Not Christ followers. 
When Jesus was here, the religious people had busted up into several camps, zealots, Herodians, Essenes. Zealots were like this. Here's how Israel rises to prominence. Here's how the people of God once again, you know, restore the culture through violent overthrow. Like zealots are down in Portland breaking stuff. And then, and then the Herodians were like this. No, here's how we take over. We take over by, you know, creating a, a, a massive voting block and everybody voting the same. Well, we're going to go in there and we're going to take the power from the Romans. That's the religious right. <laughs> and it's been, uh, you know, attempted now for 30 years. And then the Essenes were like this. A curse on both your houses. The only thing to do is just withdraw and meet in our little building here and never get our hands dirty. And then, you know, if God's pleased with us, we'll go to heaven someday. And so you had this big debate going on, and, and then Messiah comes, and everybody thought that Messiah would sanction their means, and he didn't sanction any of their means. Don't you love that? The zealots, oh yeah, Messiah's here. And then Jesus says, hey, remember, you've heard it love, said, you know, love your, love your friends, hate your enemies, but I tell you what, love your enemies. Oh, and if somebody hits you this way, let them hit you this way too. And the Essenes then, they were like this, nope, not the Messiah. And then, the, you know, the Herodians, who are going to do it from the inside, they listened to Jesus in the trial with Pilate. And, and when Pilate said, are you a king? He said, well, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. You have a kingdom. I have a kingdom. My kingdom has nothing to do with your kingdom. And then the Herodians were annoyed. And then the Essenes, who thought that Jesus would be this, you know, wonderful separatist, he's meeting with a Samaritan woman with five husbands, doing evangelism, and then forgiving a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And then, and then he's accused by the Essenes, you know, why is Jesus hanging out with the tax gatherers and the, and the prostitutes and the quote-unquote sinners? What's up with that? So the Essenes and the Herodians and, and um, the Zealots, all of them were disappointed in Jesus. Why? Because they were asking the wrong question. <laughs> they were in the wrong debate. Here's the real point of Jesus' story. The kingdom of God is here now, no matter who's in power. So step into it. Seek first the kingdom. God's kingdom's here. <laughs> kingdoms, other kingdoms, will come and go. God's kingdom's here. And God's kingdom means health for everybody, justice for everybody, peace for everybody, all nations reconciled, weapons melted down into tools of agriculture. It's a story that ends with a great banquet, great celebration, fine wine, fine meats, fine aged wine, Isaiah 24. And when we're all together and all healed and every tear is dried from every eye, then we say to one another, this is what we were waiting for. This is it. Not Republicans, not Democrats, not independents, not Greens, not communists, not socialists, God's kingdom. Holy other than any nation or party. Is that, is that your hope? I hope so. Because it's our only hope. <laughs> so, we kind of conclude this way then. A simple question. Are you able to rest? And the answer depends on which story you're putting your hope in. I mean, if you're a zealot this morning, or a Herodian, or in a scene, no, you're not resting. If your hope's in your party, then you're either, you know, elated this morning or you're despondent this morning. But if you're in God's story, then this is what you're doing. Matthew chapter 6. You're not worrying about tomorrow, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. 
No, instead, uh, Jesus says, that's what the nations seek after. But I'm inviting you into a different kingdom. Seek first my kingdom. And if you're seeking God's kingdom, hear me, you won't withdraw. You'll be a voice for the outcast. You'll serve at a community meal here. You'll volunteer in the shelter. You'll cross, you'll cross social divides. You'll care about immigrants. You'll stand up against racism and sexism. You'll be the first to cross social divides and build relationships. You'll live generously. Why? Because you've embraced God's vision for an alternative community in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but Christ is everywhere saturating this alternative kingdom with hope. That's your calling. Not to be a Republican or Democrat. I mean, vote. Good. We all do. Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. But your kingdom, my kingdom different than anything in the news cycle. That's why we pray it, and we do, don't we? Our Father who art in heaven, and then we, may your, may your kingdom come. What we mean by that is God so empower us that in the midst of all the fear, we shine as a light of hope. That's our calling. And so we close this morning by praying that exact prayer and then responding and singing. And as we respond this morning, I invite you to come up, write prayers for our nation, prayers for leaders, pray, just pray that we would shine as light in the midst of all that God has. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.